Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Decades of health horrors in a string of Hamilton long-term care homes. Why did it take so long to shut them down? We talked to a researcher about a gem of a find in Nunavut as researchers find one of the world's biggest gold and diamond deposits. And breaking news tonight with a possible deal to get rid of Meng Wanzhou, send her packing back to China, and the omission that she broke the rules. What does this mean for the two Michaels? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. A point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? We shouldn't be so obsessed about the, quote, actual delivery of the vaccines themselves, you know, the dates and so on. I think uh, what, what's really important is the fact that we're, we're planning, preparing, uh, doing exercises. The fact that, uh, well, we'll be ready doing the dry runs, the soft launch, uh, so that uh, uh, once the vaccine actually technically arrived, then we'll, everyone will be ready. Everyone will be comfortable. The people will be trained, et cetera, to uh, actually receive and utilize the vaccine. Yeah, if you hope for clarity on when vaccines arrive in Canada, we didn't get that today. But, you know, chill out and stop obsessing, right? Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, December 3rd. Boy, this week's gone fast. Very busy week. And uh, pressure mounting, no question, on the Trudeau government. Where's the plan? Show us the vaccine plan. And Health Canada came out today and told us nothing. Nothing we didn't know. I mean, sure, we got a lot of broad strokes on plans and hopes, got no actual detail. We didn't find out, like, who gets it first, how many do each province get, when does it arrive, nada, zilch, nothing. So, you know, it was a little rich to be told, you know, stop obsessing over dates when the vaccines arrive. Um, it's not an obsession. We would like simple answers, right? We would like to manage our expectations. Maybe just give us a little bit of truth. Because all people can do right now is watch the calendar slip day in, day out as it blends into months in a pandemic that has locked us down for what now seems like an eternity. And it's only going to get worse because, you know, any day now we are going to start seeing images all around the world, people rolling up their sleeves. And by the time 110 million Americans are vaccinated, Canadians are still going to be waiting for first shipments because today, the one thing they did keep reiterating is that only, only if things go according to plan, 3 million Canadians could be vaccinated by, by spring. And we just got one of those ifs because it just before uh, the show started, Pfizer announced, well, we got to cut back on production. So they're cutting half of their production of vaccines because they're having supply chain issues. Well, what does that mean? You know, where does that put us now? So what was clear today is that everyone in charge is reading from an, not even a different page. They don't even have the same book. They don't even have pens or paper. But here's what I picked out of it. If things go according to plans, quote unquote, unless there's a shortage, uh, we should get 6 million vaccines between Pfizer and Moderna sometime in the first quarter. That's anywhere between January and March. They will not arrive at the same time. They'll kind of trickle in. And while the UK has approved it and are ready to go, America has been, uh, they're going to, you know, 
approve it uh, on, on, I think, next week. But Health Canada was asked several times, like, when are you going to approve this? And they would just say, you know, any day now. And then, of course, once approvals come down, that does not mean the vaccine arrives because, of course, each vaccine has a different logistical need. It's complicated. So we're expecting the vi- the Pfizer vaccine first, unless we've now been pushed off the list. But of course, that one's the one that has to be stored at minus 80. And the uh, federal government tells us, well, we've bought nine ultra cold freezers, all these specialized freezers. Well, that's great. Are they here? Have they arrived in all the provinces? I don't know. I mean, until those things are in place, Pfizer won't ship. So General Fortin said today, you know, there are a lot of moving parts. The size and scope, scale of uh, this uh, this problem is uh, unprecedented, and um, there's a number of uh, factors being at play. So we'll closely monitor and work with uh, with the, the contract or the uh, service provider to follow very closely the distribution across the country. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, General Fortin told you know the provinces be ready for shipments by December 14th, and I got all excited. But then you have to listen to it again. That does not mean the vaccines arrive on the 14th. We just have to be ready. And then he also said practice runs are going to start across this country on Monday so that they can, you know, find out what logistical challenges they're up against, be it uh, weather, be it um, areas of the north, be it areas uh, in indigenous areas. Uh, Like we got a big terrain. We're a big country, small population, big country. I mean, oddly, Alberta has already been told what they are going to get. Apparently, they're getting their first vaccine shipment January 4th, where half their population will be... um, immunized. Uh, So why don't we know that? I mean, Doug Ford was asked several times, what is Ontario's plan? Who's getting it? How much are we getting? And today he was slightly frustrated because it was clear he was in the dark because apparently he can't get answers from the feds. Well, first of all, it concerns me that, uh, you know, we we aren't uh, rolling it out in the same fashion as be it the UK's rolling out, the United States, there's no reason at all Canada should be last in line. And I've said that before. Uh, we need to be uh, lockstep, shoulder to shoulder, with all these other countries that are are rolling it out. So uh, we aren't we aren't controlling the distribution. I'm, I'm sorry, we're controlling the distribution. We aren't controlling the the procurement side of these vaccines, and we're relying on the federal government uh, to give us uh, some information. And then that goes back to what I keep saying: How much are we getting? You know, what what type of vaccines are we getting, and when are we getting it? Yeah, good question. Maybe you can ask Alberta. I mean, we shouldn't be in this position. He's right. Uh, But the big thing is we didn't order them in time. We ordered them a couple of months after the UK. And now that there's a shortage, who knows where that pushes us? So there's, again, still lots of moving parts. And Ford's supposed to announce a vaccine table tomorrow. uh, But otherwise, we got no new details. But, you know, when you hear the flippancy of those in charge saying, you know, don't obsess about the dates. Okay, that's arrogant. Because the timing of the vaccine is crucial. I was reading in the Globe and Mail today, they report that the the second wave, of course, which is expected to peak in late February and March, if the vaccine arrival is off at all, our death toll could spike from where it is now around the 12,000 mark to over 30,000 people. And because these vaccines require two doses exactly 21 days apart, you got to remember, they also only become effective after one month in your body. So all of this has to be timed very, very specifically. And it's all happening at the height of the second wave in the dead of winter. So 
I don't know what this plan is. You know, we, we seem to have a disconnect in every level because I was reading the Toronto Sun and according to military documents they obtained, Chief of Defense Staff General Vance, and he's the guy who signs off on all these plans. According to him, the vaccines aren't going to arrive until late spring. And that comes during the height of flood risks, which will require military. And he says Canadians shouldn't be expecting to get vaccinated until the end of the year. So not September. He's talking December. And while provinces we're seeing are bringing in their own military heads, we've got uh, General Hillier for Ontario, I mean, to do the, the direct local rollout. General Vance states in these documents, it's a federal directive led by Health Canada. Why? Well, because the provinces don't have the infrastructure or experience. So that tells you how little planning is going on behind the scenes because the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. The right hand's got its left hand tied behind its back. I don't know who's talking to who. And Fort, um, uh, General Vance also realized, you know, yeah, sure, General Fortin's uh, out talking to the press, but the military has absolutely no more information than you, me, the guy down the street. And the longer that takes for the federal government to share that information, I find that bizarre. How can you be planning stuff and rolling out operations if you've got no information? And I have confidence in the military doing its job. I believe they'll be the ones to, you know, save the federal government's rear end. But I think really what we learned today is that the feds and the provinces are on very different pages. And while, yeah, the military is starting to plan and strategize, it looks like they're going to have to run this operation on assumptions, which they say they can do. That's what they're trained for, plan for anything. But it certainly wasn't a plan that we were told was going to roll out. And it's certainly, if there is a plan... No one in the Trudeau government wants to show it. So that is where we stand tonight. Lots of different moving parts, lots of moving lips. But what we're hearing is nothing. This story comes to us out of Hamilton, and it reveals that regulators are revoking the license of six private retirement homes. And when I read all through this, I thought, well, why the hell did it take so long? So you look to June when one home had a COVID outbreak that killed 16, sent more than 60 to hospital. Another home was closed down because of a fire. And this year alone, 120 violations of the Retirement Home Acts have been handed out in other homes for things like chronic bed bug and cockroach infestations, pest control problems in the food area, understaffing. You had dementia patients wandering away from their home unchecked. Uh, lack of functioning washrooms, broken windows, lack of proper COVID-19 protocols. And this one tops the list of it all. There was one resident found tied to a radiator. Who ties a human being to a radiator? I mean, what kind of care is that? And the city licenses these homes. Many of the beds are subsidized. But this operation has been allowed to go through for years. And I just don't understand how can this have been allowed to go on so long. And my other concern is, where else is this happening? Let us bring in NDP MP Sandy Shaw of Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on, Alex. It's quite a you know, I, horrors, isn't it? Well, it is. And, you know, you know, I've been through long-term care nightmares with my own stepfather in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, a lot of this stuff was happening at the place he was at. And then you read through this and you wonder, how much... Like, how many second chances do homes like this get? 
they have a lot of chances. And that is, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. How bad is too bad? And how many chances do homes like this need to, to be given? I mean, they've just been getting slaps on the wrist from the regulator. I mean, these 120 violations, you know, they go back years. So the, the, some of these violations are because they weren't even compliant to violations that they were given before. And so, I mean, it is just outrageous that this can go on in our community. And, you know, you mentioned your your folks in long-term care, and I also had that experience. And honestly, I have to say, you know, if I wasn't able to be there or my brother and sister sharing the duty, I can imagine that they, they would have needed some, you know, I can imagine that they would have not received the care that they did because, you know, staff are struggling to mm-hmm. keep up with the workload. But when you have an operator uh, that clearly doesn't, I mean, this isn't a mistake. This isn't a one-time mistake. This is this is their, you know, there's this is their method of business. I mean, this is this is not something that, you know, was a mistake. It, it was just some. This is how they operated, and I think that they were able to do it for years and years and years because they got away with it. Because the regulator would slap them on the wrist and turn away, and these atrocities were happening to our seniors and vulnerable people in our community. I mean, the the one piece of advice I would give to anybody who has a parent or a loved one in, in long-term care is you are, their vo- you are their voice, you are their advocate, and you have to go and see and check and make sure you're speaking for them. It is the biggest regret I have where it came to my stepfather who ended up dying of a bed bug infection, infection and yeah. there's no dignity in that. And, and, you know, it speaks, I think, to what, what we're seeing now across the province, and it's been going on for years. But this is a, a facility that would be licensed by the city, and a number of the beds in the home were subsidized. And so what responsibility okay. does the city have? Well, I think the city all, all does have responsibility. And so between the city overseeing it and, and the prov- in the provincial retirement home uh, regulatory authority. I mean, those are the those are the two bodies that are supposed to ensure uh, that you know that when we have our loved ones in these facilities, that there's trust there, that that you know that they're being uh, there's eyes besides family that there are other people that have eyes on what's going on there, and, and this is a failure of you know personally for me the ulti- the buck stops ultimately if you ask me at the provincial level. Uh, because, you know, that's the job of the ministry to keep our seniors safe. And so, you know, you, you can go up the chain. Who failed these Who failed these residents? Who failed uh, in making sure that this operator um, was put out of business? Uh, but, you know, we, we have what we have here is a, is a regulatory authority that, that it does, it's not a part of the ministry. I mean, that's what I think we should change. So this needs to report directly to a minister. Instead, this body... You know, they've been given the empowerment to, to enforce the Ontario Retirement Home Act on behalf of the province. But it's my sense or my feeling uh, that, the, that the government has been hiding behind the regulator when they should have actually stepped up and, and ensured that things like this didn't happen in these retirement homes in Hamilton. And your question is absolutely correct. What, where is this happening in other parts of the province? I mean, oh. uh, this, these operators were in, were in Niagara Falls, right? So it's mm-hmm. happening. Well, it's happening, I think, all over the province, and I think it's probably happening all over the, the country because we have chosen to warehouse the elderly, and it's a, it's a flawed system from, from the get-go. Um, and I'm hoping, if anything comes out of COVID-19, because this to me is not a partisan issue, it's that we overhaul the entire system and we finally get true advocacy for those who are in these homes because they truly are the most vulnerable. Um, and, and so when I look at a facility like this or the owners of the facility like this, I mean, this is not a new operation. They've been in business for a long, long time, couple of That's decades. Right. The concern then becomes, 
you know, the license might be taken away, they can sell off the organization. But what kind of checks and balances are put into place that it's not sold to someone that they know and it's actually just removed from uh, their grasp so that it's completely shut down and uh, either sold off or put into to new hands and new eyes and new ownership? So you, what you've just laid out there is exactly the problem. I, I agree with you 100%. And, and you know, this, is, this, this family went out of business before, um, in some of their homes, they ended up with them back again. So what you're saying is exactly why we need a strong regulator uh, to make sure this doesn't happen so that we, we can, so people can regain the sense of trust that they deserve when they put mom and dad in, in these homes. I mean, this, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. I mean, and you're absolutely right. I mean, COVID-19, if there's any good that can come out of it, nobody can turn away now from what is going on with our seniors in long-term care and retirement homes. I mean, we had the no. Armed Forces report that mm-hmm. made people sick to their stomach for what was going on in these homes. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully we come together, as you said, we, we have the collective goal to make sure this never, ever, ever happens again. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And that we can once again um, have the aspiration that our grandmothers, our grandparents, our you know, parents, our loved ones um, will be treated in the way that they deserve, the dignity that they deserve. And, uh, you know, I, I just only hope that that is what does come out of uh, the, the, the tragedy and the deaths that we've seen through COVID-19. Yeah, it's just unfortunate. We have thrown so many billions away trying to band-aid our way through this uh, this crisis. And all that money, you think, could have actually not just put the band-aid on these, these homes, but the amount of money we have spent could have rebuilt an entire system and one that includes much more, um, I think, kind care, which would be home care, where people can stay in their homes. I mean, obviously, in many cases, if you've got dementia, um, you know, and at some point, people have to go into a facility. Uh, but the whole system, with the amount of money that we have spent now, uh, could have been completely rebuilt. You're right. You're uh, you're absolutely bang on with that. And and home care is an important part of how we how uh, of how we um, respect what seniors want. And every I mean, my mom wants to stay in her home as long as she she can. And I respect that. But she needs the support. And we all, and we want that for all of our folks. And it's not only is it gives them the dignity and it's the caring uh, that you just mentioned. But it also makes more economic sense if we can keep uh, folks in their homes longer. It's healthier for them and it's, it's more economical. So I think that, you know, we've been looking at this whole continuum of care for seniors in, in patchwork. So we kind of look at yeah. home care and then we have retirement homes and we have long-term care and they're all regulated differently. You know, mm-hmm. and there's no, there's no sense of this is a system and that there should be standards in every part of this system um, and that we need to be able to, to have the confidence that there's, we have regulation and oversight that really has teeth, you know, that doesn't just slap these bad operators on the wrist time and time again. Lord knows if we can't do it for the people in there now, do it for us because we're all going to get there. And if you're, I mean, honestly, I mean, if this is what you want for care with no dignity and a lot of, um, a lot of, I think, pain for a lot of these people. It's uh, it's just simply not acceptable in, in this country. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'll continue to follow this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good evening. You as well. Sandy Shaw, MP uh, for Hamilton West, Ancaster, and Dundas. And look, NDP, this is not partisan to me. Fix it and come up with a system that doesn't just bring care and actual protection to these people, 
but gives them the dignity that they have deserved and earned through their life. It is just nuts, some of the stories we hear coming out of these places. It's disgusting. Well, it is a Canadian discovery that is being compared to the world's richest gold mines, and it's been discovered here in Canada, in Nunavut, but uh, even better. I mean, for months, researchers have been examining these rock formations in unrealized gold deposits where they not only discovered gold deposits dating back three billion years, but the rocks also contained little diamonds. And not only does it answer a whole bunch of questions about the Earth's crust, but the discovery comes with a lot of money to the tune of $2.5 billion a year in diamond mining opportunities. Graham Pearson is a researcher in the Faculty of Science and Canada Excellent Research Chair Laureate in the Arctic Resources, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. So this has to be very, very exciting for your group. I mean, I understand researchers are studying rocks that had somehow eroded from nearby mountains, ended up in river channels. But how did they expose the Earth's crust and, and the findings you got? Yeah. So, uh, well, it's important to emphasize that we're right at the start of outlining what the extent of this discovery is and and the extent of the deposits. But the... The really unusual uh, thing about these rocks is that they contain two very strange bedfellows, gold and diamonds. And so, so normally if you discover some terrain that's, that, that looks as though it's a good uh, opportunity for, for gold mining, that's, that's a good thing. And gold prices are fantastically high right now mm-hmm. and, and opportunities for gold exploration are really strong. But then when you find evidence of diamonds in the same rocks, then then that really provides an even bigger sweetener in terms of economic opportunity. So no but what we found is, is uh, so far from one small sample, we have three diamonds from, from uh, these gold-bearing um, rocks up in Nunavut that uh, are a really great indication that there may be further deposits up there that are... Uh, more concentrated and more extensive that might look great in terms of economic opportunity. And you say maybe that gold and diamonds are strange bedfellows, but I assure you that no woman would ever agree with that, that, you know, they are very perfectly paired. But, you know, this find is is as important just monetarily because, you know, it puts us up there like in the range of South Africa as to what this discovery could unfold. Is there any concern that all the locals or people will rush now to this area and try to scoop up everything? No, I mean, they, well, this, as I say, this requires a lot more uh, exploration and um, definition of, of what the deposit might be. But um, so you can't go up there the, with your pan. Well, no, it's not. It, it, it's not easy to get up to this area of none of it. That's for sure. And and um, of course, even in gold mines, I mean, diamond mines as well. But. It, 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 you're looking at ex- having to extract and concentrate material from tons of rock to get mm-hmm. uh, sub gram amounts. So, so it's a it, that it's a highly specialised area in extracting all grade minerals from these rocks. But nonetheless, they they yeah the the I mean the really cool thing about this deposit is that. Yeah, ge- geologically, although these two minerals are strange bedfellows, I'd agree they're certainly not when they, when you put them together in jewellery. The um, geologically, it's extremely interesting because there clearly must have been two primary sources, one of gold and one of diamonds, that that were exploited, eroded by rivers, and deposited together 
in the rocks uh, that we've been studying. So, and, and also from a geological perspective, these rocks do have remarkable similarities to the Witwatersrand Rand um, uh, gold mine in, in Southern Africa, which is an area around Johannesburg that historically has provided 20%, well, a lot of estimates would put this at 20% of the gold ever mined historically has come from the Witwatersrand Rand gold deposits. So, so these deposits are not as extensive as those, but they're geologically very similar. And so as excited as you are about the research, there's going to be a whole bunch of companies, I think mining companies, that would be very excited to get their hands on them. I mean, where does this go from here? Uh, well, as I say, it needs a lot more work, but but yeah, they, they, I think the great thing about Canada and uh, especially none of the Northwest Territories, but the whole of Canada is that we are a resource-based economy and we do have a lot of resources in the ground. And so this is part of a number of of uh, good gold occurrences around none of it that a number of companies have uh, staked around there. And um, uh, and I think if the gold price continues to be strong, then it looks really good for developing some of those deposits. And when, when you throw the potential of having economic diamonds into the mix as well, then, yeah, that's a pretty nice sweetener. Not just for uh, the mining companies, but certainly for the local uh, communities. It could be just a big old game changer. Well, fascinating, terrific work. I'll look forward to uh, seeing what you dig up and find and uh, following this adventure. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the interest. Bye. That, that is Graham Pearson. These guys are always so modest. They find unbelievable stuff and then they just kind of, yeah, yeah, this is all in the day's work. I think it's very, very exciting. Some breaking news in just the last hour. The U.S. Justice Department is now in talks with Meng Wanzhou about giving her a deferred prosecution. And that would require, of course, her to admit uh, wrongdoing. And then, of course, she'd be sent back to China. And you'll recall she has been charged with wire and bank fraud related to allegations that she violated U.S. sanctions on Iran uh, on behalf of Huawei. But this is an enormous shift. And it likely comes because we've had a change in administration, but nonetheless, uh, enormous consequences and implications for the two Michaels. Mark Warner joins us, an international competition and trade lawyer. And Mark, it was your Twitter thread that I noticed uh, this story breaking. It's being uh, reported by the Wall Street Journal. Um, It's a pretty big uh, development, and, and I assume it's because of the Biden administration stepping in. Uh, well, I think it's I think it's a I think it is a big development. So that 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 part's true. Um, I don't. Well, the Biden administration doesn't come to power to, till until February. But I think for those for people like me who are American lawyers, and I'm a, I'm both an American lawyer and a Canadian lawyer. But from an American lawyer point of view, what's been frustrating that a lot of the conversation around this from the beginning is the easy way to make this case go away was for Meng Wanzhou and her company Huawei mm-hmm. or their father owned to do what another Chinese company, ZTE, did, which is to plead guilty, get a deferred prosecution agreement, agree to fines, and have some kind of compliance measure. And then there'd be no extradition case in British Columbia. Huawei has had shown no interest in doing that. So um, my feeling is that it's not surprising that these conversations are going on. I'm doubtful that there's any way you could separate her out. So I think it's, it's, it's positive. I think her lawyers probably are seizing on the election results to initiate the conversation. 
And I think it's a, an important conversation. But I think if they're trying to say that she can plead guilty without Huawei plead, pleading guilty, because remember, it's a case against Huawei in New York. That's what they're right. going after her for. And her father, if you look mm-hmm. at the indictment, is in what they call an American legal speak. He's individual one. He's the guy they really want. Right. <laughs> so individual two <laughs> is in Vancouver, but they want individual one who's still in China. So I can't see any scenario where Meng Wanzhou could plead guilty and just go back to China without having some kind of a corresponding guilty plea by Huawei, which they've not shown any interest in doing up until now. If they do that, frankly, the case goes away. That's always been the way it was going to be. And I, I think what's interesting is whether the Chinese government, much more so than the Trump administration, is this a signal from, the, from China that they are signaling to Huawei, make this go away. We want to have a fresh start with a new president. In which hmm. case they're saying, do what that other company, ZTE, which is also Chinese, has already done. Which has been the great mystery. Why? Why? Which is also ZTE is also a telecom company. So right. if ZTE could settle a case, why can't Huawei? And right. Well, let me jump in because SNC that that is the company that we can kind of look at because that, they wanted a deferred prosecution. That's how we came to know right. about deferred prosecutions. It's almost unheard of when it comes to an actual person getting one of these things. But if she had to plea to uh, wrongdoing, then clearly she would have to go back to China. She wouldn't be able to run Huawei for her father. I don't think her father's coming to the United right. States. And so I have to think that's the big reason why they don't, you know, that, that she yeah. would not want to admit to wrongdoing. But it's, imp- I mean, honestly, I, I think it's an important story tonight that the Wall Street Journal is breaking. But honestly, the American lawyer in me just thinks there's no way you could separate her from the ongoing case in New York. So she, I think this is what we're, what we're hearing, what we're seeing tonight is what her lawyers are saying that they're willing to do. So her lawyers are going to the American Justice Department uh, lawyers and saying if you, she will plead guilty to some combination of things, wrongdoing of some sort. May, you know, misstatements or whatever. And that's a, sort of an invitation to dance on the part of the American prosecutors. But I would tell you that I think it's really unlikely, extremely unlikely that that would make the case go away. What has to happen now, the American lawyers, American Justice Department lawyers are going to come back to her and say, okay, can you get a plea from Huawei? Like we had from ZTE. That will make it right. go away. That's really okay. what this is. But I think the fact that this story is breaking is a, is a sign of movement. This is the kind of movement that, I, that I've been looking for for some time. And I think it's an important step forward because I think it probably shows it's an indication that I think the Chinese government and her lawyers are looking for a creative way of getting around this. Right. And so the negotiations begin. And and part of this deal, I can't imagine that this deal could be done unless there was an arrangement that the two Michaels were part of it. Uh, I mean, if, if that were the kind of, I mean, I, don't I, know, I, I mean, I, I know this, this is where I, I feel so guilty because I'm, I'm, I am Canadian and I feel that, that I don't think the Americans are particularly interested in the two Michaels. I, I know that that's what we're interested in Canada. But the issue for the Americans is simply... They have a Chinese company, Huawei, which has broken, in their view, American sanctions laws with respect to Iran. They have an ongoing lawsuit in New York, and they want, it, so they, they want that case to be resolved. And then if, as part of resolving that, the two Michaels come back to Canada, they'll be happy. But I don't think that they're doing this to get the two Michaels out. 
I, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think they they would do it to get the two Michaels back. But right. I would have to think that there'd be ongoing conversations between the prime minister's office and uh, and whoever's doing this deal right. in the U.S. saying, "Look, we're a trading partner of yours. We're an ally. This has to 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 include the two Michaels." Well, I hope so. I mean, I've been looking for indications for a year, eighteen months, that this is what Canada would say. Whenever we hear from the Liberal Party grandees, you know, uh, the yeah. uh, you know all of the former Chrétien type people. They've always been saying we should let her go. We should do that. We should give China what they want. I've never heard anyone from that sort of liberal coterie that are presumably speaking for people who are close to the prime minister. Uh, I've never heard anybody say, actually, no, Meng Wanzhou, you could help Canada out a lot by pleading guilty and doing going for a DPA. So, so I think that is change. And I, I think that maybe that's an indication that the Canadian government has had a conversation at some level through intermediaries or whatnot with their lawyers saying, please make this go away. This is the logical way for this case to go away. So I just uh, I, I never understood the all of the stuff about, you know, you know, all of the stuff we've been hearing about letting her go and doing this and campaigns. It's straight hard American law of sort of extradition and law of sanctions and the way they use their DPAs. Like I said, and China knows this because a very significant Chinese telecoms company has already availed itself of exactly that procedure. So um, this is good news. Um, I think it's good news for all concerned. And if 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 well, if if Ming Wanzhou can somehow um, get her father to have the company plead guilty to something <laughs> as well, I think she'll go home. And I think eventually the two Michaels will come home. Well, that would be the hope. And then, of course, the other part of the deal has to uh, be that Justin Trudeau says no to Huawei, a decision that should have been made a long, long time ago. And for whatever reason, he's either too scared to do it uh, for fear of, of what will happen. But, you know, again, yeah. uh, if they can make that happen and then we shut the door on Huawei and then, you know, uh, say good riddance. decision beforehand. Yeah. No. I've never understood in this story because, I mean, it's interesting. Is that the story was broken by, I think, Reuters in March of 2017. And so the whole world was on notice. And people who know this stuff know that the, the, the U.S. Justice Department was doing a criminal investigation of, them, of Huawei and these, and these senior executives. And they stopped traveling to the United States. And I was involved as a junior lawyer in Washington, you know, defending a guy called Mark Rich, who you might, some of your listeners might be familiar with. He was the last guy pardoned mm. by Bill Clinton. And one of my jobs as a very junior lawyer was to make sure Mark Rich knew which countries he couldn't go into their airspace, you know? Yeah. Um, so what was strange, so strange is she continued to travel back and forth, I think it's something like 18 times to Canada. And I've just never believed that she, that, you know, knowing the kind of advice that Huawei would have received from their American lawyers, which is don't go near Canada, and knowing how Canadian law lawyers work, I just can't believe that she would continue to travel to Canada unless someone told her, you're good. And that was an insane decision. And it probably had something to do with the fact that they didn't want to be caught up in the in the in the whole Huawei issue or be seen to be knuckling under to the Americans. I don't know, but the, the, it's crazy to me how frequently she and her family continue to travel to Canada between March of 2017 and when the arrest was made in Vancouver. It's, that's a whole part of the discussion that maybe when it's over, people in Canada will look more closely at because. Well, she, well, she's rich. No one said she was smart. I mean, there's, anyway. <laughs> yeah, she's not smart, but she would have got the advice. I, I can tell you because I know I <laughs> rendered that kind of advice as a lawyer in Washington, as a very junior lawyer, to show you how, how simple that is. But this is good because this is yeah. if you want to get out of this kind of an American investigation, this is the language you have to start speaking. 
I, guess I don't think the American lawyers are going to bite with just a plea from her because ultimately what is she going to say? Because essentially when you have her, when you get a DPA from her, it, it's going to involve her agreeing to testify and assist the prosecution in New York. Well, the prosecution in New York is against her father. Yeah, right. That's true. So, so I don't it's know complicated. You, I don't know, yeah. So I don't know how you get a plea from her without, uh, without having a plea from the company, to be honest. Fascinating. Well, we were uh, at a logjam, and and hopefully this is the first of many steps of movement. But for the love of uh, God, for those families of, of the yeah. Michaels, I just really hope uh, they 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 get home, uh, you know, sooner. So They've been I. through enough. Mark, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us in such short Thanks, notice. Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks. Mark Warner, international uh, competition and trade lawyer. So there you go. So some good news. Not the best news yet, but it is movement, which is what we uh, have been needing. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.